0: You were looking at a man playing with a monkey. We've all got photos like this, clowning around, having fun, but not all of us end up heroes. This was Airman First Class William H. Pitsenbarger. Pits. You've probably heard of him because of the way he died. You should remember him because of the way he lived. April 11th, 1966, the Battle of Za Mi. Charlie Company had been led into an ambush. Heavy casualties, perimeter failing, requesting immediate help to get men out. The Army helicopters wouldn't go in because it was too dangerous. But an Air Force Pararescue unit overheard the call and volunteered to go in anyway. Nobody woke up that morning knowing that history would look back at this as one of the bloodiest days of the Vietnam War. For Pitts, it was his day off. Naturally, he volunteered to come along. He was dropped down into the firefight as the Air Force Huskies hovered. The helicopters were receiving heavy fire. Charlie Company was receiving heavy fire. Soldiers lay wounded and dying, and they were running out of ammo. Pitts was there to retrieve casualties, care for the wounded, and get them up into the helicopter and back to base as quickly and as safely as possible. He put the better part of a dozen wounded aboard the Huskies, and then waved off his ride home. The helicopter was heavy with the wounded and dead. To this day, the pilot doesn't know if he could have made it out of there with Pitts on board. Why did William H. Barker stay behind? Our lives are made up of moments and choices. Pitts was a PJ who completed over 300 rescue missions in Vietnam. He had nothing to prove. He knew exactly what he was looking at. This was a slaughter. And in that moment, he chose to stay. As the fighting went on through the night, he saved the wounded and gathered guns and ammo from the dead in the cover of darkness. He snuck outside the perimeter to bring back men that had been hit. He covered up one wounded soldier with two dead bodies and told him to stay down. That soldier watched Pitts take his first bullet. It's hard to say how many members of Charlie Company owe their lives that night to William H. and Pitsenbarger. He was shot three times and never stopped. He cared for the wounded shot back at the muzzle flashes and when he could, he looked into the eyes of men who knew they were dying and just wanted him to hold their hands so they wouldn't feel alone. The next morning, April 12th, 1966, when the battle was over, most of Charlie Company had been annihilated. During the fight, the Viet Cong would sneak into the perimeter and kill the wounded. Pitts lay among the casualties. There was a bullet hole in the forehead of the gas mask he wore. The pararescue emblem is an angel with her hands around the world. William H. Pitsenbarger was no angel. He was a ladies man. He was a clown. He was known to be reckless and foolhardy in his youth. He was a stock boy from a small town who told his parents on New Year's Eve that he was jumping a train that night to report for duty in the Air Force. He was Pitts. He was an airman, and he was awarded the Medal of Honor. We don't win the Medal of Honor. This is not a contest. We're not asking you to die for your country. In fact, that's the last thing Pitts would want. Simply ask yourself, why did he stay? This was not a man who died the right way. This was a man who lived the right way by living the core values. We lead the way by showing the way. Remember William H. Pitsenbarger Remember these things he did that others may live. Aim high, Airman.
1: And we're back. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done an episode. I've been doing some traveling uh, around the world. Took a small break, but now we're back. We have a great episode for you guys. Uh, Before we get into that, I would just like to... Let you guys know that this podcast is sponsored and brought to you by Abe's Bauman. For more than 20 years, the experienced attorneys have helped veterans across the country get the benefits they deserve. No one fights harder to protect the rights of veterans. Find out more at abesbauman.com slash vets. That's a B E S B A U M A N -N com slash vets. So for this week's podcast, I have the honor and privilege to talk with Chief Master Sergeant uh, N.G. And N.G. is the owner of SEI, a, a company that specializes in, in uh, several, you know, very specific types of training for special operations, uh, police officers, first responders. And he also spent... Uh, 21 years in the Air Force as a PJ, uh, deploying various times around the world. And, and we talked about a lot of different uh, different things, rescue. And we talked some about what the prior rescue men specialize in, which is rescue. And, and some of the kind of broke down some of that. Really interesting, has a long career, uh, you know, served for a long time and and done some really good things for this country. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So here's the conversation that I had with NG, the Chief Master Sergeant, uh, U.S. Air Force. Hey, what's going on, brother?
2: Hey, John, how you doing?
1: I'm good, man. I just want to thank you for for coming on to do this. Um, You know, it's it's good to finally be able to get together and and do this. Uh, You know, there's a lot going on, uh, especially here in the States and and things that really, it's it's tragic, but, you know, kind of unfortunately in this country, some of the only times that we do come together is, is, is in a tragedy, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's when uh, I guess most people feel very united or they want to be united. You know, there's some comfort in uh, tragedies
3: and uh so absolutely. I agree with you hundred percent, man. And I know it was taking some time for us to get together. And, uh, again, I apologize. You had to be thinking like, man, what's going on with this dude? But,
1: uh, no, it's all right.
2: But, uh, yeah. So we're here now. So that's good.
1: Right. Absolutely. So, uh, so, you know, we'll start off with briefly talking about Houston. Um, I know specifically in Houston, there is a lot of, a lot of people from outside of Texas are, are going down there to help out and, uh, you know, that would include like coast guard rescue crews and, uh, air force, uh, PJs as well. Um, and, and, I really, I guess that's kind of the, in some ways, the bread and butter of what PJs do in terms of, uh, you know, being able to evacuate people from disaster zones and, and really bad situations in general.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, that is, uh, you're right, John, that's their, that's their bread and butter. And though, uh, obviously they were bred and born into the military and that's where they started. Um, when you're talking about the nature of your business being rescue and that, you know, for para rescue, um, they're the only dedicated service, uh, or the dedicated, um, um, job where their primary job that they were, um, born and bred for is to rescue. It's, they are rescue experts, not to say that other, um, all the other services out there don't do it because they absolutely do. They do SAR they do SAR, but as a secondary or tertiary type of mission, pararescue's primary job is, like I said, they are rescue experts. So. That's what they do day in and day out. When you join the military to be a PJ, you are joining to be uh, a rescue specialist, a, rec- a rescue expert. And, and you're right. Houston, right now, as uh, with everything that's going on, it is ground zero for some pretty horrific things. So the PJs, I imagine, though I can't be there, though I would like to be there, they are there in force. And it probably looks like a damn uh, mini reunion down there as those guys are down there saving lives.
1: Yeah, I saw some posts on uh, Instagram from a few guys who were posting like, um, you know, just pictures of, you know, them by the helicopters and that kind of thing. And it's just really incredible that people are willing to kind of drop everything and just go out there and and do what they got to do, you know? Um, so you, you were in the Air Force for uh, quite a number of years. So can we talk about what motivated you to join the Air Force? And then did you know prior that you wanted to, Join the PJs?
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did 26 years in the air force and, um, I, when I first joined, I wasn't a PJ, I was actually a, uh, um, a cop or an SP at the time. And, uh, no, and so I didn't really know about pararescue then. And, uh, um, though I had heard that during basic training, you know, they would come in and, and offer guys a chance to, uh, sign up for pararescue. Um, I don't remember that during basic training. Maybe I was, uh, doing something. Maybe I was preoccupied that day because I damn sure would have would have jumped right on it. And, uh, um, so I was a cop for my first five years. And, um, what I did was after I, I went through Minot for a couple of years, Minot, North Dakota, and then I went over to Misawa, Japan. And while I was in Misawa, Japan, um, they actually stood up a pararescue unit there for a very short time. And, uh, and so I got to know these guys, you know, and I was hanging out with them and I was, I was into fitness and I was working out all the time. Uh, loved doing my job and I tried to do it the best I could. And, uh, you know, I tried to, my work ethic is such that I, whatever I'm doing, I try to do it the best, you know, and that's the way I was brought up. Um, and so they stood up the PJ units over there for uh i think for i think it only stayed open for about a couple years but i got to know the team and they were showing me uh i remember because i'm in i'm in the room one day and i'm just talking to these guys and i'm hanging out and they're kind of showing me through uh, taking me through like some of their photo albums and i'm just looking at this array of stuff these guys are doing you know they're climbing they got pictures of climbing and they're climbing all around the world and then they're, you know, they're jumping and they were going to these really elite schools, um, you know, uh, halo and hey, ho and, uh, you know, a combat dive school. And so really what it was is that, um, I just started hanging out with them and, um, I, I, I kind of started to go, uh, man, this, this would be really neat to kind of go do this type of thing, you know? And, uh, um, just like a different calling. And, but how it, how it really happened is one of the guys I was hanging out with, um, one of the PJs at the time, it was really on a challenge. You know, we were hanging out, we were working out together all the time. His name was, uh, AR. That's what he went by. His his operating initials were AR, but he basically said, you know, yeah, you're fit or you seem fit. You're hanging with us. But, um, you know, the attrition rate down at Indocs about 90% and, uh, I don't think you could do it. And so it turned, I started out as a challenge and, um, oh, cool. you know, and you know, one I didn't want to back down from. And um, so I said, well, uh, you know, I'll prove you wrong and I'll go down there and I'm going to pass it. And then, you know, I went to end doc, I got accepted to prepare a rescue. I cross trained, and I went down and I passed in doc. And then, you know, now I'm in the pipe and I basically said, well, you know what, since I'm in, I'm just going to do this thing full bore and do the best
3: I can and try to be a good PJ. So That's really where I got in.
1: Right. So the, any kind of selection for a special operations unit, um, especially one that has a, a 90% attrition rate, is obviously incredibly difficult to um, to pass and, and, and get into. Uh, you know, I, online with the social media and, and podcasting, I get a lot of people, mostly younger guys, who are looking to join the military or just joined, and they're maybe they're on their first contract, and they they want to go special ops, and they want you know they would like any kind of information and pointers they can have, uh, you know, to what would help them pass the selection. Um, do you have any advice for anyone who's looking to join? Oh
3: yeah, I probably got
1: all kinds of advice.
3: I, I will tell you that um, I I going down to just because by the nature, you know, I, I was armed with you know, hanging out with these guys. So, um, I, I, I try to learn as much as I possibly could about them. and anybody who's going to go into anything like this should absolutely always try to learn as much as you can. And, uh, obviously the internet, uh, social media, like you said, Instagram, and, and there's just all kinds of ways you can do it, but that's not really the way I recommend. I can, you can certainly shore up, um, some of your training by, Getting the gouge on from the internet and what are they doing down at these courses? What are they doing at Bud? What are they doing over here? And, um, but the best way to do it is really to find a mentor. And and I believe that 100%. You need to find, if you want to be a SEAL, you got to find a SEAL and talk to a SEAL. If you want to be a PJ, then find a, a, a PJ and talk to a PJ. Um, because those are the guys who've been there and done it, you know, and you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like, uh, spend some time with these guys and um, You know, we're always looking for good guys. All, all the elite services, the elite uh, units are looking for good people and and It's an inc- it's incumbent on uh, a guy who wants to pursue this uh, this job or this profession to learn as much as he can before he goes and, and that's, that will just help you uh, get through the course, you know, it can reduce some of those stresses by kind of knowing and learning and, and plus, when you eventually do get in those jobs, that's what you're going to be expected to do anyway. Anytime you go on a mission, you're going to be expected to learn as much as you possibly can about the mission, to prepare yourself for the mission, to to, uh, um, to put everything in, 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 in an order where it offers you the best advantage to be successful on the mission. So that's what you're doing. You're going to try to set yourself up, set yourself up success, And the best way to do that is to give somebody to be a great mentor to you. So, I
2: trained really hard for NDOC, um, but I really didn't under, and for Pararescue specifically, and probably a lot like the other courses, you know, their pipelines, uh, a lot of the same schools, but a lot of different principles uh, and how they go about uh, doing it. A lot of legacy, a lot of heritage uh, across amongst the other elite units. But in pararescue specifically, we attrit, uh, even though it's a two-year, it can be anywhere from two years to three years, You know, maybe two and a half, uh, depending on the individual, if they wash out or don't wash out of a certain school or injured or something like that. Um, But we do, our hardest school, or one of our hardest schools is up front. So we like to attrit up front, have the hardest school up front, and then... um, and then if you get through there, you know if you get past that ninety percent, eighty five percent attrition rate through Endoc, you should be good to go. You know, um, barring hey, we're injured on a jump or something like that. And then, uh, and then it levels out. And then as you go down to PJ School or PJU, the medical portion is is another spike. There's a, there's another high attrition rate there, but it's not nearly as high as it is for uh, for Endoc. So I trained really hard um, physically, but I guess I didn't really appreciate or really truly understand the mental aspect of what they're trying to do because um, I was young, you know, and what they're trying to do when, when you go to select somebody to do these type of jobs. All right. So you have a finite amount of time, you know, uh, you know, you could say two years for the pipeline or for in doc 10, 12 weeks. So you have this time. And so the mentality or the, the logic behind this, and they've got it down to an art, is that, hey, given, given uh, a, length, uh, a, a, a huge length of time, you could probably get anybody through anything. But we don't have that luxury. So um, what you're trying to do is in a short period of time, we, we want to impose stressors, mental and physical, on an individual that that breaks them down and then when the individual's been, been broken down that's when you truly see how a person's uh, their metal is that's when their metal's tested that's when their character truly comes out and that's when you know if somebody's really the type of person that is going to quit or is not going to quit in the heat of battle or on a on a tough operation or uh when they're dangling underneath the helicopter because they're 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 stuck on, on a caving ladder or something like that. Um, those times there are not the times to find out, uh, that, Hey, maybe this person probably wasn't the right person. So, um, I don't know if that makes sense, but so what you're trying to do in all these courses, at least in the, in the toughest parts of the courses, the parts that have the highest attrition is, is to break a person down. Um, even when they've trained, even if a person's trained, Um, because if they've trained their, if they've trained their ass off and then they come there and they're totally prepared 100% and even though they can pass the standards and things like that, um, if you don't take them to their breaking point, you really don't know what you got. So, so a lot of these courses are very tailored and and towards the individual, or they try to make you really feel like a, um, you know, we're, we're, we're testing you as the individual. Yes, there's the standard over here, but we're going to break you down and really see, um, what you're made of. And, um, so that's, that's what they do. And, uh, so even though I trained my butt off and, and I was doing very, very, uh, good in the course and at the standards, um, they still have a responsibility to break each individual down. And then after they've broken that individual down, to see is that is that individual individual willing to go on from there so um, and different people break out and break down at different levels and stuff like that so uh, they're they're clever without dropping too many without offering too much and offering too many secrets they're clever in the ways they do it by breaking the individuals and the teams down to really see what a person's made of does that make sense
1: yeah absolutely so so basically that was probably a mouthful but no uh, it's fine it's fine and and you know what I gotta got from that is no matter how fit an individual is when they get to selection, they'll break you down regardless and and then that, and then that's the point where you know people get selected, you know, this guy's gonna make it, this guy's not gonna make it, and that kind of thing.
2: That's right, absolutely because they have to do that. you know, a, a person could have been training for four years at their own pace and at their own comfort level and at their own you know, sometimes the best way to really, that's why people have coaches, you know, to push them farther, to push them harder. That's why they have teachers and mentors, because sometimes you can't, you know, induce the stresses on yourself. Some, not everybody, you know, I mean, some people, you know, they're truly gifted out there, you know, they, they internalize it and, and they can really dig in deep, but boy, when you're having somebody else on you all the time, um, you know, that, that can be a real stressor. And so, you know, given you know, for if somebody's trained for three or four years at their own comfort, comfortable pace, and and they've they've trained to the standards, and then they just think they're going to come in there and just do the standards, um, you could see where that could be a problem. Yeah, hey, you can do the standards, but we haven't seen you truly broke down, so we're going to break you down, and then we'll worry about the standards on the side. If you understand?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And okay, so, so earlier you you spoke about um. <clears throat> guys going to dive school and and having that capability. And I think that's something when people kind of from the outside looking in, they think about an air force special operations unit. You don't associate that with being able to dive and and that kind of thing. And so what I kind of a question I had for you is, you know, what makes the PJs a unique organization in terms of the mission set and then the men who make up the unit. And on top of that, um, Why is it so important for PJs to have that dive capability?
2: Yeah. So, okay. So you asked a couple different questions, so make sure I don't miss any of them. I'll tell you what I truly think makes pararescue one of the most unique um, units or unique mission sets that, that guys sign up for. And that is because after working with, other with after after working with all the other elite units out there, and you know them all. That I'm talking your top tier, your top elite units that are out there. What I what I've come to find out is, you know, we all we all go to a lot of the same schools together, and then we all go to combat together, and then we work side by side, in and, and the joint community, and um, the, the these guys are no different than than the way I am, and they're no different than. The other guys so even though a guy joined the air force and he wants to be a combat controller or he wants to be a pj he he very easily could have been a seal and uh and the seal could very easily be a a pj and and you could take these all these type of guys they're all they're all um cut from the same mold which is a very adaptable very uh, confident very accomplished type of individuals and you can you can just plug them in at any one of those type of jobs. How did they end up in the air force? Well, I kind of told you how I ended up, you know. Like, um, but you know, it could be legacy that brought you into to SF to be to be uh, a Q course guy. You know, maybe your parents got you. And your father was in the Navy, so you joined the Navy. Um, but where I'm going with that is that they they all kind of do that mission. That is, hey, we go in there. We, we, we are bred to go and, um, get rid of bad guys to destroy, eradicate bad people who are doing bad, bad things to, to Americans or doing bad things to humanitarian or uh, to humanity in general. And so it's good guys, good people who want to help, um, for those who, you know, who can't do it, you know? And so they do that. The nice thing about pararescue, though, is it's a little bit different in that even though you're working with all these other elite uh, guys and you very well um, could have chosen that same job, I came in, you know, like I told you, you I, I met these guys and I did it on a challenge. But in my head, as long as I can remember, ever since I've been a child, I've been young, I always wanted to rescue people. I always wanted to help other people. So pararescue men, the guys who sign up to do pararescue, though they very easily could have been a sniper, uh, you know, and then one of these other guys, they they chose the path of I want to help people. So uh, and don't get me wrong in the process of helping people, you know, we always like to say the best medicine is return fire. And I think I, I think you know what I mean by that. Hey, The best medicine is return fire. That's that's our first practice. Uh, make no bones about it. I will, I will do as, as will all my brothers do whatever it takes to, to, to accomplish that mission and that rescue successfully. But, uh, you know, in my head, my mentality first and foremost was to go and I wanted to help people. I wanted to rescue people and I wanted to save lives. And, uh, um, I hope that makes sense, but I think you follow me kind of what I was trying to say on, just a little bit of the difference between, um, some of the, some of the, some of the units and what they're doing.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And, um, and how about the dive portion of, of, of why it's important, uh, for, you know, an air force special operations unit to have that, uh, diving capability.
2: Yeah. So, um, so like I said, we are the DOD's only, only dedicated full-time, um, rescue, um, units, rescue, uh, members, rescue team. So that means, uh, geographically, you should be able to, uh, affect a rescue anywhere around the world. And, uh, when you're talking about a global responsibility, uh, um, global recon, global responsibility where you could be anywhere at any given time, then you need to have all the the infill um, methods, all the exfil methods, um, any any the all the array of tools that would be um, needed to execute a rescue. And uh, so um, jumping in um, from high altitude, jumping in from low altitude, static line jumps, hay hose, high opening, um, um scuba diving, you know, mountaineering, extrication, all your extrication courses, swift water rescue. Um I mean the list just goes on, you know, the medical, all the PJs are paramedics at the national registry EMT P level. Um so they need to have all that training. And so you train you train all the time. Like like all the other elite Uh, units do You, you spend all your time training and you spend all your time trying to um be uh to stay proficient as you possibly can um so when when the bubble goes up you're ready to go and um and it's a lot of stuff i mean you'll never stop you never stop training you know you 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 go to combat you go to war um when there's a war going on um and then you come home and then you train you see your family you try to spend time with your family but you train and then you're training right up until your next deployment and and because there's so many different things for you to train on and stay abreast of and so many skill sets for you to stay qualified on you know you you have to it's almost like doing triage you have to pick based on where you're going uh, what mission you're expected to do, you try to get spun up on on those those skill sets uh, you know and, and triage them and like okay hey, there's a good chance we might have to jump in into this area. so let's make sure my, my, my jumping skill sets uh, fairly tight. Hey, we're going over to Afghanistan. Hey we got that's very mountainous. Let's make sure my mountaineering skills are up to par with my rope systems, my rescue systems all that type of stuff. And, um, and a perfect example is, uh, um, what's going on in Houston as they start to, um, you know, clean up down there with Harvey and then what Irma coming up next, um, which is about to pound what Florida
1: yeah. coast.
2: Yeah. So those guys, you know, again, they're going to be right over there. Why? Because they have all the, the medical background the, the airmanship skills, the swift water rescue, the dive training, the recovery, scuba recovery training, all of it. So it comes into play.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a really kind of a vital skill set that, that PJs bring to the table for, um, you know, for this country. Uh, so yeah. can you share a story with the audience from a deployment? Uh, could be like a rescue type of operation or a time where you treated someone under fire, maybe?
2: Yeah, I got a couple, um, you know, the, um, you know, early on rolling into, uh, the early days in Afghanistan's, you know, um, it was, it was, you know, it's, it's funny because all my, all my training, you know, we go through some pretty in-depth, um, um, uh, medical training. And um, but I have to tell you, like, I, I guess some stuff I was not prepared for and in, in retrospect and, uh, you know, blast injuries was one of them. I, I, I you know, I, we definitely we rotate through ICU uh, at various hospitals, you know, around the country as we do our rotations. Um, you know, when war's not going on, you're plugged more into the civilian world doing rotations on ambulances for national registry and uh you're spending time in hospitals but um i i was not really prepared for uh, blast injuries and um uh i know early on rolling into afghanistan that's probably where i got my first taste of uh of blast injuries and i really underestimated um um how how i guess how graphic and and, and violent blast injuries um were it's unfortunate um, you know, I, I, did help with a lot of humanitarian stuff over there. I saw a lot of, uh, young, young Afghani kids, um, at least early on. Um, uh, I ended up treating a lot of them. I spent a lot of time, um, when I wasn't on uh, missions, I would spend time over in, in Afghanistan and some of the, in, in our hospitals. And I, I, saw a lot of kids uh, who unfortunately you know, stepped on landmines and, and I actually, was standing next to a couple of kids that I've had to carry and, and treat uh, and take care of limb and blast injuries and things like that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's unfortunate and, but it's, it's just how it goes. It's, you know, it's war and, um, it's, you know, it's not, it's never, it's never pleasant, but, um, but we go over there and we try to do the best we can, you
1: know? Right. And, and when you're working like on a deployment, uh because there, there was a show a couple of years ago uh, I, I forget the name of it I think maybe it was uh Inside Combat Rescue or something like that and uh
2: Yeah, Inside Combat Rescue with Nat Geo?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And and it was basically like the the PJs for that uh, deployment were working as like a a um uh, a medevac bird where they would guys get wounded or they would fly in and take them out and, and uh, get them to a, a surgical center as fast as possible. Absolutely. Yes. And, it, and that's like kind of one of the, one of the main jobs that PJs could end up doing on a deployment, right?
2: Yeah. When you're talking about, um, limited, limited ass, assets, And, uh, I'm talking about like limited assets, I'm talking about limited assets, like within the DOD, you know, we only have, um, so many, you know, so many helicopters, so many vehicles, so many people to go around, so many qualified people at certain medical levels and certain um, subject matter expert levels and this and that. So what you try to do is a based on it's, a, you know, it's right. It goes right back into triage what you and I were talking about with those limited assets. What you have to do is You try to put, you try to put in place, you know, who's going to give you the, 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 well, I'll I'll call it like the 85% out, you know, outcome, which is like, uh, um, so the PJs, you know, got, got, um, they started doing like the medevac mission because they were the best fit. They really were, they were really so qualified. Um, with all their medical background and all their rescue background that um, it was just an easy, you know, as, as we just didn't have enough medics and and folks who could do the real in depth medical um, expertise needed on the battlefield and um, coupled with their mountaineering experience and all those things you and I just uh, were talking about that. It was such an easy fit to have them shore up some of the theater support. And so Aside from being imbe- embedded on the ground with very elite teams around the world, they they geographically and strategically placed these uh, elite um, rescue experts in strategic places around the theater to just to execute what you basically saw, which is uh, um, you know, uh, which was what Nat Geo uh, basically covered covered down on when they, they produced uh, Inside Combat Rescue.
1: Yeah, it was pretty interesting to watch it. Uh, I think there was like a couple episodes, five or six maybe, and it just showed, you know, what it's like to kind of be on on standby at all times, and then when a call comes in, guys are running to the helicopter, and uh, and just go, getting out there. And um, it, you know, it's it's interesting. I know there's a, in some ways, a lot of things that are done within combat arms or special operations has to be kept uh, secret in order to remain effective and whatnot but at the same time I feel like sometimes people should just be able to get a glimpse of what goes on in order to understand what uh you know our, our fighting men and women are doing over there um
2: yeah so. ha- yeah absolutely well it's you know it it's it's hearts and minds and it's it's a lot of politics and um you know um compartmentalized stuff needs to be re- needs to remain compartmentalized and then you know the DOD is good about, Hey, where we can offer some insight into what we're doing that doesn't compromise anything strategically to the nature of what we're trying to do over there, then, then they sure as hell try to do their best to, um, let people get some insight. And, and, and that was one of them, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and I, I, it's probably an easier one for folks to gravitate to, because, you know, you're talking about, rescuing you're talking about medical and trying to help our soldiers sailors airmen uh, you know our warriors who are or being injured on the battlefield and and not just us but other you know uh um, other countries and and the local populace also you know we, we we help we're you know we're over there helping everybody
1: yeah that was one thing that was shown as well on the uh, on the show was Afghanistan, if I'm not mistaken, is the most heavily mined nation on the planet. Uh, with with the Russians, when they left, they they really left a ton of mines there. And then with the continuing fight, uh, the civil war that took place, and then with the fight against the, you know the Western coalition, you know IEDs was really an effective way for them to fight. So the place is just filled with mines, and and the problem with that is it doesn't discriminate. So anyone steps on it. Uh, it's going off, and unfortunately, a lot of uh, Afghans, children included, uh, lose limbs uh, or, or lose their lives. And and what I think was important to show is that uh, American forces were going out there and risking you know their safety to help get Afghan kids uh, to a surgical center to try and save them. Um, and it's it's just kind of an important mission, and you know, like how you talked about how you dealt with that early on in Afghanistan. So I know that you were involved in a, uh, a rescue operation that took place prior to the global war on terror kicking off. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah.
2: Yep. So uh, I imagine you're talking about Bosnia. So yeah. this is with uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, so the war and Milosevic and all that stuff was going on over there. And uh, um. Yeah, one of these days I'll have to talk about, you know, how I met my wife because my wife's Italian, so I met her during this whole time uh, right before this. But, uh, so if you remember when, um, the stealth 117, uh, was shot down, the stealth fighter, which is pretty, pretty remarkable, but, um, uh, yeah, so we were on alert for it over there and obviously, you know, we're sitting alert, just kind of like what you saw, like on Nat Geo, you know, we're, we're sitting alert, um, my, my, myself and, and, uh, and we pull rotations. But, uh, on this iteration just happened to be that, uh, um, when, when the stealth fighter was up and, uh, it was doing its thing along with uh, the air assault force, uh, you know, a missile locked onto it. And, um, and so the pilot had to punch out and, uh, and then right after he punched out the, uh, the uh, fighter was hit and, uh, and I think you probably just like the rest of this country saw all the footage, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, with the, them holding pieces of the stealth fighter shot down. But anyways, before we, before that happened, you know, that, uh, the pilots who I really can't name, um, you know, he got out, he punched out at a very high altitude and, um, you know, he, uh, he made his way to the ground and we, we launched on him. um, uh, we put the force together and um, it was pretty surreal, to be honest with you, because, uh, you know, when I think back about my training and how we learn how things are going to go down, um, this was almost kind of like textbook. And v- that's very rare because it's probably the, f- the first, the last and the only time that it ever really went down that way. But it was really like a textbook type of mission. And like I was talking about, you know, the pararescue the pararescuemen were built uh, in in war and uh, and really made a name for themselves in Vietnam. But uh, this was that mission that they were kind of built on, which is uh, a plane shot down behind enemy lines, and the PJ's have to go there and uh, try to find that pilot who is evading on the ground. And literally, that's really what we did. You know, the, we he the, the pilot was okay. He came up on comms we were talking to him you know and uh not directly initially but you know as it bounces through and it makes its way to us so he was authenticated and uh said he was uh, on the ground and that he was ready for pickup and uh and it went relatively quick you know we launched uh, a, a three ship um three ship of helicopters to go and grab him and I was on the lead bird and uh the plan was uh we had two larger helicopters and we had a smaller one uh HH60 and then uh 253s and the plan was if he was uh, uh you know ambulatory we would um um put down the larger force the larger helicopter excuse me the uh, smaller helicopter and grab him just kind of do a snatch and then if he uh, if we had to spend some time on the ground, we, we'd put down a larger one. And, um, but we, uh, yeah, it worked out well. We, we flew in there and, um, under the cover of darkness. And I remember as we were, we were closing in on his position that I remember seeing, uh, literally, uh, bad guys almost in lines looking for him. And they were pretty close. They were, they were, uh, getting near and we basically flew right over the top of them. Uh, came down under the cover of darkness. We had him, uh, 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 he was authenticated and we swooped down right on top of him. Um, we opened the door and, uh, he climbed in and we left (laughs) about like that. That's about how it went down. Um, and, uh, and we got him out of there. And then basically what this country saw, um, you know, the next day was basically what you saw on TV and that's kind of the, was the burning wreckage. But, uh, um, they didn't, they did not get their prize, which is that pilot. And, um, cause we got him, you know, we saved his life and, uh, it was pretty awesome because, um, I got all these letters, everybody on the, on the whole team, the whole team, the rescue team that, to, that went in, got all these letters, personally handwritten letters from all his family and all his extended family. And, uh, and I tucked them away. They're pretty cool. Uh, you that's know, awesome. I haven't broke them out, but you know, they're from like his daughter and mother and father and uncles and all best friends. Just a, just a awesome handwritten letter saying, thank you for, you know, bringing my father home and, you know, we'll never forget what you did. And, and, you know, and just from their mother and father, it was just really, um, it's the greatest feeling to, um, you know, I, I look back at that mission and I think, man, that, that was pretty neat. And, um, from a strategic point of view and then from um, like a personal view on, you know, just getting the stuff from his, from his family means a lot.
1: Yeah. I remember that. And, you know, it was all over the news. And um, I I think it was even talked about in like military documentaries later on. Um, But I think it's interesting how you pointed out that that was like one of the rare times that it, it actually happened kind of textbook and i i think that's just an important uh piece to talk about because you know it's something i've talked about with different guys before from different units and they just talk about like no matter how much you train and and all the scenarios you go through once you actually get there it's never quite exactly what you trained for and you got to you got to kind of adapt uh on the fly and uh i think that's it, kind of an interesting point
2: yeah that's it's so true because um you know, you always have to have a base plan. You always have to have a plan, um, but then you have all these contingencies, and a lot of times you're exor- exercising the contingencies, and uh, you know, without going into so many details on, you know, just the the real um, intricacies of what really happened, you know, because I I just can't really divulge a lot of that. You know, for the most part, it it was a it was a beautiful pickup you know it really was and um um that was a pretty glorious time i remember you know coming back and everybody was like you know there was crowds of people just like man that's awesome you guys picked them up and you know there wasn't even a shot fired i didn't fire a shot you know and uh so um but it was you know if you think about how big that was
3: that was pretty huge and you're talking about the stealth fighter too you know
1: right that's a big deal absolutely yeah yep Absolutely. So, you were in the PJ's for what a total of twenty-one years.
2: Twenty-one years. Yeah, my last twenty-one years.
1: Okay, so during that time, obviously, you know, right before the the Global War on Terror kicked off, and then uh, deploying all throughout that time, uh, at, you know, after uh, Bosnia, uh, one thing that has been. A, a positive from these wars is the the development of procedures and, and tactics and techniques in regards to uh, combat medicine and, and uh, bleeding control and, and all of that stuff. Um, can we talk about some of the, the transformation as it happened? Uh, you know from your perspective, uh, on the medical side is specifically in special operations and, and combat arms, like with the whole emergence of TCCC triple and, and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. So, okay. So let me, let me go big to small real quick. So, so obviously when a war is going on and, and the DOD and the, the country are like totally engulfed in a war and, um, And, and people are dying, you know what I'm saying? Like it's the center, it's the center of the universe. So obviously when Afghanistan, you know, when the towers were knocked over and we roll over to Afghanistan and then later Iraq, um, so there's a lot of money being dumped into it. And, and, and rightly so, because people it's front page, you know, and, and when the helicopters crash or when people aren't picked up quickly or when lives are lost on the battlefield, there are a lot of questions being asked, and there is a lot of stress um, from from the highest from the from the, uh, the, uh, the from the beltway, you know, in D.C. all the way down to you know the operator on the ground on how to do it better, how to do it smarter, how to do it faster, how to do it safer, and um, so there's accountability up and down, you know, all the chain. Um, So in war, you know, that's probably where, and I guess where I was going with that. So in war, that's probably where the biggest leaps and and gains are probably made, you know, because sometimes when there's, when, it's not to say that, you know, things are slow when a war's not going on. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying like when a war's going on, R&D, research and development and, and, and contractors who are civilians who are supporting the military, they are getting real-time data from the battlefield, and they're you know from the war effort. And there's a lot of money being dumped into it, and there's a lot of being money being dumped into these the all the all the the components that that run that assist in the war effort. And so, um, so I think you understand what I'm saying. So you make huge strides in a war because of that right there. Hey, somebody needs to be held responsible, you know, and how can we save this person's lives uh, better? And, um, and and a perfect example was, uh, um, you know, how we have in the civilian world, uh, we have the golden hour. You've probably heard it, you know, the golden hour, right. hey, you know, this is the drop-off curve, you know, they have about one hour. And then if you don't get them to a hospital by then, Well, you know, when, when, you know, just like what we were talking about strategically trying to put our, our really our best trained, most highly medical trained personnel strategically, uh, or our rescuers across the battlefield, um, there was a lot of stress from, from, um, or a a lot of uh, actually mandates. Hey, look at, we want, we want our soldiers, sailors, airmen. We want them to receive medical care within the golden hour, you know, and that was a thing that was kind of put down, even if it was maybe initially we were thinking, man, that's unrealistic you know but but when you when you throw in politics and you throw in um, you know good leadership or bad leadership and 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 accountability, these are um, bridges and gaps that start to close because. Um, you know, accountability is the fastest way probably to close some of those gaps. And so, um, so huge strides in medical were obviously made huge strides, but I wouldn't just say medical. I I know you, you, we probably want to focus a little bit on the medicine, but, uh, you know, huge strides across every aspect of of the war effort, you know, when it comes to the technology and the weapons and the technology and and the aircraft and, and then how, the technology that the, the soldier, the sailor, the airman are putting on their bodies to help them, you know, execute the war effort or um, put bombs on targets. And and so the same with the medicine, you know, a lot of money was dumped into medicine and we had real time data points on like what was working, what's not working. And everybody, all the consumers are people who are supporting the, well, the war effort from outside of the military you know, we we're we're feeding them the data points. Hey, look at this tourniquet, this tourniquet doesn't really work. I know as a civilian I thought it was working, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work when uh, you know, when it's blast injuries and things like that. So um yeah, so they were making huge strides. And um and so you reference like T triple C. So here like a lesson learned. Like so the Rangers, I feel like the Rangers led the way in this, man. God bless their souls, man. Uh, the Rangers, who um, just huge, huge battalions of men going out there, just doing some, uh, just some heavy fighting, along with the, everybody else. But you know, for T C, we'll talk about the Rangers, man. But uh, um, they were they were losing a lot of guys. They were losing a lot of guys to whatever, you know, snipers, to IEDs, to um, to whatever types of injuries that are sus- unfortunately uh, sustained in, in, in battle and um and they really you know they are not enough medics to go around so they they wanted to they peeled everything back and they're like we need to do better with um buddy care self-aid and buddy care like how come our buddy who is standing right next to the guy who got shot um how come he can't take care of a lot of these injuries and what they found out was that uh so TCCC or care under fire um was that a lot of the injuries that guys were getting they didn't require, you know, at least initially a surgeon or a medic. They really just required somebody who was knowledgeable in how to throw on a tourniquet, how to roll a guy over on his side, you know, maybe how to, to do a, a, though it's invasive, maybe even something like a needle uh, thoracentesis where you're releasing the air on a collapsed lung. And so the Rangers really led the way and, and T triple C and, some of the, some of the best self aid and buddy care, they were so good at it. Like every single soldier, every single Ranger. Um, I mean, it was a blessing to go to war and be next to one of those guys. Even if he wasn't a medic, um, they had instilled in their programs. Um, this, this component right here that they, I think they just turned everything around. So a lot of lives were lost initially. And they turned it all around and they, they, they showed, like on a graph, how many lives they were actually saving. Um, so they really led the way amongst all the elite services, I think, in the best self-aid and buddy pro- program, um, you know, just by introducing um, uh, within their forces a program that uh, no matter what they did, I think how they did it was no matter what they were ever doing, you know, however they were training – they always did medical exercises. You know, they did man down drills on a jump, man down on this, you know, whether we're doing CQB, we have man down. And so their guys just got really good at taking care of the soldier who's injured right next to him. So I don't know if I answered your question. I probably maybe got it and maybe added some more.
1: No, it was good. And, and so what I'm kind of getting is aside from the, uh, you know, the, the, the bleeding control and the tourniquet use, the way that they implemented the system really made the difference.
2: That's right. That's, that's right. They, uh, um, they didn't make it, uh, like a, maybe a passive system. It was just very proactive. And, um, and, and so because of that, they end up, you know, through the course of lessons learned and, and, uh, tactics techniques and and procedures they implemented a program that they were able to turn a lot of things around and they saved a lot of lives just by recognizing that hey look at we don't have enough medics to go around but we don't need medics to do what's killing a lot of these guys they just need tourniquets slapped on them they just need you know just something as simple as this to save these lives and a lot of lives early on That's just how it is it's nobody's it's nobody's fault or I don't blame anybody. It's just how it is. Um, a lot of lives were lost probably early on um, because, you know, just not being able to recognize that something as simple as that. Hey, this doesn't require a medic. This, this just requires um, somebody to throw on a good solid tourniquet. And if it's still bleeding, throw on a second tourniquet and know how to really crank them
3: down.
1: So the, the concept of the golden hour you brought it up a little while ago is that something that came about during the Gwat or did that exist before?
2: No, the golden hour goes I don't even know, John, how far back it goes. I've always understood the golden hour even going back to 21 years ago when I first became a PJ. I I bet if you and I traced it back, the golden hour is probably something that came out of the 50s or 60s when it came to, when it when it came to medicine, you know, and and I, and I, and I believe I read something that it's not even steeply rooted in, in fact anymore, you know, but it was like this, it was more like, Hey, this is a good, a good rule of thumb to follow. Hey, this golden hour, if we can get the people from injury to medical, um, personnel within an hour, they have a good chance of, of living. Um, and it's still, I think it's still something that, uh, you know, it's in people's heads, um, today, especially some of the, you know, older people, um, you know, uh, that, Hey, there's this golden hour out there, but, um, you know, these days we don't really use the golden hour. I know I mentioned it because that was kind of the term that came down as a mandate. Like, Hey, we want to, we want to, which let's, let's get in line with the golden hour or, or see if we can kind of meet that golden hour thing. But these days, if you do, if you know your medicine and you go and look through the studies, um, it's not really a golden hour. They have, like, this whole other um, equation they use that's called, like, the, the the drop-off curve, you know, the drop-off, the death curve, and. Um, and it, and it's not even within a golden hour. It's something completely different, man. It it can even go past the golden hour. It just has to do with certain types of injuries and things like that. It's a lot more analytical.
1: Okay, cool. Um, (laughs) so let's talk about leadership, uh, being, being in a special operations unit for 21 years, leadership is something that, is imperative to success and, I mean, really kind of in in any walk of life, but uh, specifically for what you've been doing. And, um, you know, as someone who's been there for that long, I'm sure you've ended up in in a role where you were leading uh, other uh, PJs and and whatnot. Can we talk about what do you think uh, are good qualities for a good leader? And what are some bad qualities for a uh, bad leadership? Or maybe if there was an example uh, without, you know, naming anyone or anything where bad leadership affected what you were doing or, or attempting to do in your job.
2: Okay. So let me see. Let's, what's the best way to start? Well, wait, let's talk about good leaders, man. Like I, I, I feel like I was one of the blessed ones and in, in the sense that not saying I'm a good leader, I feel like I was blessed and having been lucky to have worked with what I feel are some of the greatest leaders in the DOD. I, and I mean that sincerely, I, I just feel like, uh, I was lucky. Uh, I went to war with some really, truly astonishing, uh, you know, leaders and, um, um, and all the way from my, uh, immediate supervisors, all the way up to my commanders. They, they were, um, very, very impressive. And, uh, um, I, I mean, I used to ask my, my immediate boss, I'm like, man, you know, he was just a, a very, a very charismatic, uh, very influential leader. And, uh, I mean, the type of the guy who really, and I've seen him do it. It sounds almost, it sounds almost cliche or kind of funny, but, uh, you know, I, you know, as we're going into combat or getting ready to launch on some, 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 some serious type of operation, you know, he was, he's the best motivational type of guy. Um, and I've always valued that. I'm not saying all leaders need to have that. They don't need to all be great orators, you know, and, but, you know, I just happen to be blessed with some of these guys that were just great speakers, you know, just to could give the a truly very impressive, uh, motivational talk uh, before guys were stepping out to go into harm's
3: way. And, um,
2: uh, you know, and, uh, I, I, I will tell you though, if I have to say, you know, what are, what are some of the characteristics, you know, like I, I don't even like to get into those like, well, you have to have, you know, integrity, you have to have uh, good communication because you know, leadership is so dynamic.
1: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I,
2: I mean, it's just so super dynamic and I've seen great leaders who maybe didn't possess all those traits and they still were effective leaders. And then I've seen other leaders who possessed all of them, you know? And, um, so yeah, you can, you can, you can sure you could pick up the book and go, Hey, look at, uh, you know, uh, a leader should have good communication skills. He should have high integrity. His values and morals should be on with, and that's all, that's, that's all legitimate. And, and any deficit in any one of those areas, you know, guys are going to notice. Um, and you're probably not going to get far if you don't have good integrity. I mean, I I just can't see it. Uh, you could probably be an effective operator and do your job well, but, um, you know, as far as, as far as keeping the respect from the men, you're just probably not going to have it. And, um, the leaders I went to war with, I, I, they had all that stuff, you know, and, um, but one thing they, they, one thing I did notice that I, I guess I took for granted, i I'd never even thought it was something that you needed to have is, uh, they all had a strong faith and, um, and I, I, it's funny because, you know, I was baptized Catholic, but, uh, and I brought this up another time on on some other thing I was doing, but, uh, you know, I was baptized Catholic, but I hadn't really been practicing, but I was, I was starting to notice like from my really, truly great leaders that they all had strong faith. And I had a lot of respect for these guys. And, uh, you know, they all seemed to have a strong faith. Um, whether it was, it was faith in something, if that makes sense, John, like it was, they, they had faith in something. And, and, um, but, Originally, you know, I I started to try to be. I, I wanted to emulate most guys who want to be good leaders. They try to emulate other um, leaders who are who are very successful. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about. If you want to be a seal, then find a seal, find a, a mentor, find a guy to model after. Well, guys who want to, most guys want to be a good leader. At least in my job and these type of jobs, um, at some point they want to be. You know, they they care about how they're perceived by the team. They they care about how they're perceived by uh, leadership above and below. And so, if you care about that stuff, you know, it's almost like natural to hey, I want to lead. You know, I've been the member, and now I want to be a leader. I want to lead this squadron, or I want to lead this team. I want to lead this unit eventually. And so. So they find um, leaders who are successful and they try to emulate that success, which is uh, an excellent way to do it. And uh, so I started doing that, you know, and uh, it's funny. So I started to see them with a strong faith. And I, I originally, to be honest with you, I started probably going to church because I wanted to be like my great leaders. And then from there, it just it just then I just naturally after going to church, you know, I, I really started to develop my own faith, but I know that sounds terrible, but it's funny. Like that, that's kind of how I got there. I, I had so much respect for the men who were asking me to go into combat and who were standing beside me in combat. And they seemed to have a faith, which I, I, I was, um, you know, I felt like I was lacking and if that made me a better leader then I wanted to emulate that and, and, and these days I'm a hardcore, you know, uh, Catholic and, you know, I, and I, I, very rarely miss, miss church, you know, and I, I want to make sure I'm raising my kids uh, a little better than I am. And, um, and I'm just happy there's been like, you know, like the, the people you're interviewing who are over there, you know, doing this job. So, you know, my kids can at least, you know, get to a couple years and hopefully get a little bit older and um uh, and and have some sort of you know blanket of uh um you know defense you know and and guys over there protecting them while they while they while they grow up,
1: yeah, you know the whole faith thing is interesting it's it's something that I've seen as common amongst a lot of um personnel in the special operations community or individuals in combat arms period um I think there's an old saying that says there's no atheists in the foxholes, and yeah, um, right. right, and it's it's just kind of interesting how that that's kind of like a common theme amongst individuals living that kind of life, and uh, you know it's just something to, to kind of take note of. And I think the whole point of you, you know, where you said you were kind of emulating, you know, the guys who were leading you, and and you know some of the guys who were a little older than you, probably a little at the time a little more experienced. Um, I I think that's kind of common as well. You know, who better to emulate or who better to take uh, lessons from than somebody you really respect who's effective at what they do and, and they're good in, in, in combat type of situations, you know?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, and then, you know, the, the other thing is that, you know, just being in, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq and being in combat and then losing friends, you know, like losing friends. I really, I really, you know, so the same time that was going on, you know, about trying to emulate these guys and, and um, then, you know, seeing some people, you know, die and then other guys not die. And then, you know, like, man, I can't believe it. Like, that was a close call or this wasn't a close call, man. I just saw that like so often. And so I really start to ask myself, I'm like, man, I think somebody else is puppeteering this thing, you know, yeah. and, and, don't get me, and don't get me wrong. I am not an atheist and, and I'm definitely not, but I wasn't back then. And I'm definitely not today. I'm, I'm a hardcore uh, Christian Catholic, you know, and, um, and, but I wasn't an atheist. I just didn't, you know, I just wasn't practicing and I just didn't really, but I tell you, you know, like um, everything changed over there, um, but it, but in a good way for me, you know, in a good way. And um, and, I, and I really was like, hey, somebody else is running this thing, you know. And I'm don't get me wrong. I'm not saying go out and step in front of a truck or, you know. Yeah, and right. the, you know that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I go, you mitigate it down as much, as much as you possibly can. You do risk analysis. You do all that type of stuff. You know, but the, at the end of the day, uh, when it's your time – you know, it's your time, and it doesn't matter what you're going to do, and and that's what I kind of saw that transpired.
1: Yeah, you know, the whole faith thing is uh, kind of uh, interesting, and it's sort of like the rhythm of of the universe in a way. Not to not to sound kind of cheeky, but there yeah. really isn't a way to explain how one guy steps in this one spot he's fine. Then the guy right behind him steps in that same spot and he, you know, he steps on an IED or he gets hit by a sniper or something like that. And I think it's, like you said, there's something going on there and it's, you can't really put your finger on it. But I, for me, I kind of view it as like just like the rhythm of the universe. And like you said, if if it's your time, then it's your time and there isn't really a much you can do about it. Uh, I, I guess, except for embrace it. and And that would be like kind of the most peaceful way to go. Uh, you know versus kind of going against it
2: yeah it's um you know it's it, it it's uh you know it's hard to lose a friend it really is and um yeah you know, I, I lost a bunch of friends i lost my my uh my very first supervisor in in pararescue who was quite a legend um a, a guy by the name of mike maltz and a uh, guy was larger than life and he really truly was the epitome of, of a a pararescueman, but and he died in a helicopter crash over there. And I've lost numerous friends in crashes. It's it's very unfortunate, you know. And uh, um, to even go that way, and I think it's even harder on the families when when somebody's lost. I don't even know if that makes any sense, but you know, when a family when somebody's lost in a training accident, you know. Um, but like our training, you know, it's, it's real training. you know, like, when you go out and jump, it's a real jump. Or when you go out and, and climb the mountain, it's real climbing. It's not like some virtual world or you're in a classroom, but, and maybe, you know, that's hard. Maybe, maybe family sometimes doesn't, under you know, I, I don't know, but, but there's no, there's no consoling, uh, anybody when you lose, uh, any family member or father or, or son or daughter or anybody, you know, but, uh, but man, when they're lost in in a training accident, I think it's just the worst, you know, And, and people ask a lot of questions, you know, it's, um, you know, in combat when you're over there in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's, you know, I think people try to, you know, they prepare, they don't ever want it. Nobody ever wishes it, but, uh, it's just how it is, you know, and it's, um, it's tough. I've, I've had to, uh, unfortunately, like many, many guys, you know, I've had to, uh, um, put my friends in a, in a body bag, you know, right there, right there in, um, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan. And, uh, but it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't stop you from doing your job. You just, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you have a, a short little, you know, memory about it and you think about it and then you compartmentalize it and then you get right back in the, uh, in the saddle. I don't know. Maybe that says something about the training you go through and how good the training is. But, uh, you know, you get really good at compartmentalizing. I'll tell you that, like, I feel like I'm really good at compartmentalizing, uh, stuff. And, um, you know, a good example might be, uh, you know, when you're out on a jump, if, if I had a fight with my wife or, or something, anything that's occupying my mind, but I'm going out to do a, a jump out of an airplane like the jump doesn't take long, you know, there's a lot of preparation on the front side, man, there can be like five hours of preparation and try to get this plane off and all coordination, but the jump in itself is, you know, a couple minutes, you know, at the most. And, um, but it's absolutely so critical that you're focused 100% in those couple of minutes. You can't really think about anything else. So I always used to be like, when was, as soon as I got in the airplane, I'd be like, even if I had something major in my head going on, I would go, okay, boom, I'm done with that. I'm not thinking one other thought about that again. I will think about that once I hit the ground safely. And literally you take it and you put it like in a compartment and you don't think about it again. Like, I don't know. I think that's how most guys do it. And that's, that's the way I did it. But, uh, and then war was the same when you lose somebody, you know, like uh, there's a time, you know, you, you, you mourn when you have time, but, you got to keep your head in the fight. Right? That makes sense, right?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's because it's the nature of it and the, the the danger of it, you know, in training or in actual combat, you really have to stay focused. I mean, if you're doing any kind of job, the idea is to stay focused, regardless if it's military or, you know, anything. But when the, states, right. when the states are that high, it's like if you make a mistake, you know, I might die or, or someone else might die, then I really got to be on my – uh my A game. And, and I think just kind of touching on what you're talking about with the, with, with there's something a little different about a guy maybe dying in, in a training accident It's is like you said, when, when people go over to deploy the families, you know, it's something that obviously you don't want to happen, but I guess you kind of prepare in the back of your mind, you might get that call or whatever. But when you, when you hear like it's a training accident, it's, it's almost like that doesn't make any sense, right? At least for the for the family or you know friends or whatever. But the reality is, it's the training that you guys do is is extremely dangerous, uh, as is uh, going to combat.
2: Absolutely, you're absolutely right, one hundred percent. The the training, is, is I've lost I've lost friends in training. I have lost a lot of friends in training, uh, as any anybody in the military who's been around, you know, a, a certain amount of time, they've lost friends in, in training accidents and that's just how it is because the training is you're trying to make very realistic war type of training go on. And, uh, you know, and, and so, yeah, but the worst thing in the world is when somebody dies on a training accident and their wife thought they were coming home at four thirty, you know, and then, You know, like, hey, they were supposed to pick up some milk, you know, and and they don't come home that day and they just get this call like, wow, I didn't even know he was doing a jump today. You know, I thought he was just, you know, on a computer today, you know, and uh, so that is that's the worst.
3: And uh, I I, I don't know.
2: I don't even know how I got on that, but I just remember thoughts
3: of stuff like that happening and just was terrible to notify uh, families.
1: Oh, yeah, Um, I can imagine, man. So since so, how long have you been out the Air Force?
2: Um, I've been out. Um, coming up on two and a half years.
1: Okay, so about two and a half years out. Um, obviously the transition out of the military is something that is talked about, and it's for some people it's a little easier than others. Um, but you have a business that you are running, uh, a, yeah. a, a company that you run, and can we talk about the company and then? Um, also I would like to talk about Well, we'll talk about the company first and then I'll I'll throw in what, what, uh, to speak about after.
2: Yeah. So John, so yeah, I'm up here in, uh, you know, I've been up in New Hampshire and, um, I've been coming up here for about the last 12 years as a PJ, you know, training in the mountains, you know, the presidential mountains. And, uh, and we come up here and do our mountain rescue training as one of the places, you know, we would come up to and, uh, and, uh, So this area where I was coming up, this guy who used to own this business that I would eventually buy was a mentor of mine, you know, and through the years I'd ask his advice on stuff. He was a former PJ and, uh, and, um, so, you know, I've been out two and a half years ago, uh, two and a half years. So about four years ago, he wanted to retire from this business and I asked him what he was going to do with the business. And, uh, he wasn't sure. And I said, and I, um, I said, Hey, look, if I offered to buy the business and get out of the air force right now, would you sell it to me? And, um, you know, he waited about 24 hours and called me back the next day and he goes, you know, he kind of shot me a text with a price and he said, okay, here you go. This is, uh, this is what I'm asking for it. If you want to buy it, you can buy it. And, uh, so, that's what I did. I basically, I had 26 years in, I could have done, you know, for four more years. And, uh, um, but I always wanted to run a business and, you know, and, and it was an opportunity. And I've always told my guys, Hey, when, when opportunities present themselves, you know, that's not the time to try to get prepared. You always have to be ready for when opportunities present themselves. So always be ready and uh so it was my chance to practice what I preach and I'm like I jumped on it.
3: So um
2: uh, so I bought the business from him and I've been running it ever since. Over the last 2 years I've been running it and uh so you know I'm 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 still plugged into the community. You know I'm training um you know PJs and and uh you know seals and elite guys um you know doing mountaineering and know, uh, care under fire, um, you know, some survival type courses, um, urban vertical salt climbing, a lot of those type of things. And, uh, but the one I'm really proud of, the most recent one is leadership, straight up warrior leadership courses, you know? And I, uh, so some of those, those guys I was talking to you about, like some of the best leaders I've ever spent time with. I bring them up and, you know, I pair them up with, um, you know, Fortune 500 leaders or NFL coaches. And I put on like, a, you know, a week long leadership course for warriors. It's like warrior, straight up warrior leadership. You know, um, you know, that sounds, you kind of probably ask yourself, well, warrior leadership, well, what's that? Well, first of all, like, like I said, the, the primary instructors are kind of guys who are forged in, in combat. But then they're paired up with these other great leaders and, you know, and some of the big companies and stuff like that. But I call it warrior leadership because, you know, we go through, we go through leadership in the Air Force and I, you know, the Army and, and everybody goes through leadership schools, you know, as, as they're young privates and young airmen. and, And then the, then the leadership courses become a little bit more advanced. Um, but in the Air Force, the leadership schools that we went to, I didn't think were really um, the best for our type of really um, elite type of guys who were real warriors in the Air Force, and uh, and some of the tools they wanted us to use, um, maybe I I just didn't feel like they were the best they were the best fit for the mentality of the men that gravitate towards like pararescue, combat controllers, and you know, and some of the other um, elite guys in the air force. And so, so this is that type of stuff, you know, the best way to, the the best way to lead other warriors, man, you know, um, that type of thing, you know? So that's, 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 that's what we're doing a lot of, and that's what I really enjoy.
1: And so mainly you, you're working with, um, outside of the leadership portion, you guys are working a lot with military and, and, um, guys from that community, uh, mostly.
2: Yes. Yep. But I will tell you like, um, you know, very recently that, um, I've been getting a lot of requests from like what I'll call like the paramilitary units, you know, like SWAT teams, the cops, you know, EMS. And so I've been doing some stuff for those guys, uh, uh, apart from the other courses I run, but, um, yeah. So I'm starting to do some stuff for those folks since, uh, since I'm in this community and they're, I'm around them, I'm getting to know them and they want the training, you know, they're, they're like, Hey, look at, I'd like to, I'd like to learn some you know, care under fire. We got active shooter stuff going on all the time and schools and, and things like that. And they're like, Hey, I'd like to learn from a PJ, you know, this is kind of your bread and butter in it, isn't it? And I'm like, yep, you're absolutely right. So here's how we do it. And here's what I can, you know, what I can show you.
1: And all of the courses that you run, do you do it just in New Hampshire or do you travel as well?
2: All around the country, actually all around the world.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yep. So, you know, talking about the transition process, um, some people get lost in that process. When they, when you get out the military, you're used to going a hundred miles an hour uh, at all times. And then you get out and, you know, maybe you didn't have a, a very detailed plan of what you're going to do. You, you say, yeah, I'm just going to get out and kind of take it easy and see, see what happens or what opens up. And and some people just kind of get lost in that process. Um, you know, how important is it? Because you, when you got out, you you already had your business and, and you had the next uh, journey or kind of the next uh, objective. How important is it? For people getting out of the military to properly plan and and say, "This is going to be what I do when I get out," and and this is kind of my new purpose, so to speak.
2: Yeah, like having a plan is absolutely uh, very important, you know. And um, it's um, it's funny because, well, how, what's what's the best way? To uh, term it, um, I I knew my personality, and so I, you know, some of my friends had gotten out, and they, you know, they just wanted to they wanted to chill out for a while, you know, and maybe just you know, do some things that they maybe they were maybe play catch up on, you know, that they hadn't been able to do because doing twenty or thirty years of being in the military is a completely different life, and uh, you know, I I I was cool with that. I was jiggy with some of that too, but I knew that. Hey, well, you know, that'll be fine. But then what am I going to, you know, like I knew my personality and and I I thought like in my head, if I just chill out, then about 18 months or in about two years, I'm going to be going like, okay, what do I want to do now? You know, like, what's my purpose? Is, is this just what I'm going to do? Just, just kind of ride it out. And so I knew that that wasn't for me. And so I didn't, So I just kind of left one busy environment and just jumped right into another busy environment. But, but that, that's, was my comfort zone. You know, like that I was fine with that. Um, I always, matter of fact, you know, like we didn't talk about the pararescue foundation, but me and a couple other PJs, you know, started up the pararescue foundation. And one of the things we try to tackle at least for pararescue men and combat rescue officers who are transitioning you know, like anytime I get wind that a, that a PJ or, uh, or even a combat rescue officer is getting ready to transition out. Like I, I heard this guy's getting out. I call him up. I call him up personally. And I, and I have this talk that you and I are talking about right now. I'm like, Hey, what's your plan? What are you going to do? You know? And, and, and a, a lot of them like, Hey, I'm going to go to school, you know, or I have this plan. I'm going to go into business. Or I'm going to do this. But, um, so so I talk to them and then some of them are this anxiety that you bring up or, um, if we can call it anxiety, um, they, they have that. And then what I try to tell them is, is that, and I feel, and I, and I truly believe this. I, I try to put them at ease and I try to tell them, uh, along with having a plan, I try to go, Hey, look at man, you as a PJ, you as a crow combat rescue officer, Man, you have had so much training and you have been screened from the very the 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 cream of the crop. You know, the cream rises to the top. You are already in the top of the top percentage. I mean, just getting in the Air Force and doing your Air Force time, you've been screened. But then now you've been screened again to get into pararescue. And then if you've even gone farther and served in other elite units of pararescue, then you've been screened again. And uh, so some of these guys who are really like the top, you know, zero, zero, one percent of the one percent, you know, they might even ha- have anxieties about because they've been doing it for 20 or 30 years. And I try to reassure them. I just try to tell them that, hey, look, at you know, don't underestimate all the training, all the skills, all the, you know, all the rigors and, and aptitude and everything that you've been armed with through this years of you know training in the air force and through the years of being in this elite unit and I go I go I think you're going to find that you're going to come out and you're going to be overqualified and 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 armed with a lot of tools and a and a lot of new ways of doing things that it's going to be refreshing to to the people that you're going to be working with and um so I hope that makes sense, but that's how I feel, you know? And, uh, and so I try to, I try to share that with them that, Hey, look at man, like, don't, don't, don't change what you've been doing, man. Like just keep doing it the way you've been doing it. And you know, you're, you've been very successful. You've been very successful all these years, 30 years in the military and, and, and one of the most elite jobs in the military, you're going to come out here and be just as elite and just as successful. And, uh, just, you know, so I try to reassure them in that sense and try to look at it like as a, as an untapped, uh, new opportunity that, um, that you can get into.
1: Right. Well, well, that's what it is. And I, I think some, in in some ways through, and, and then some people have, you know, the, the whole PTSD thing comes up and, and that's
2: right. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, the last podcast I did, I had a um, a, a special operations uh, independent duty corpsman on.
2: Oh yeah, okay.
1: With and he, he was uh, attached to Morosak for a couple of trips, and then a guy who was an 18 Charlie for a long time, uh, Green yeah. Boy, and okay. and and we talked about like these these combat injuries of the brain that people have, and and how sometimes you know the PTSD might be a misdiagnosis and it's really like a physical brain injury that uh, is affecting the individual. And, and then of course, issues arise from it not being diagnosed properly and and not being dealt with properly. Um, Yeah. But I I think strides are being made and and people are starting to figure it out, at least in some degree. And obviously that's a good thing, but, um, you know, dealing with that, and then dealing with the transition is like a, you know, adds a crazy amount of stress to the individual. But, um, you know, I, I think it's really incredible that you guys are doing that with the foundation because I believe that some guys just need that phone call, you know, just to say, Hey, uh, you, you are completely viable and, and everything you've learned is, is important and can help people outside of the military just to kind of reassure them that, uh, you know, that's reality, you know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing about the foundation, what's nice about the foundation is if you look at it from cradle to grave. So, so a PJ comes in at this young guy and, you know, maybe he only does four years, but you know, but maybe he does 20 or 30 years. So from, from the start time, he comes in all the way until grave, like you're talking about PTSD and combat stress and all that other stuff. So the foundation is there for them. Like, you know, I just, I just hosted a retreat up here, uh, last week, a week ago where, you know, we brought, and this is the second one we've done up here in, uh, New Hampshire where we brought, you know, we have, we, we, we sent a message out to those guys who are like, Hey, look at if, uh, you just need a break. Um, because I don't want to label them either. You know what I'm saying? And, uh um, right. You know, so it's it's very delicate, but but we want to let them know that hey, look at the foundation is is here for you, uh, and if you don't think you need it, maybe your brother needs it. It's here for you guys, man. So anytime you need a break or you feel like you just want to you want to you want to you want to back back out of the uh, war zone for a little bit and just come up and go on a retreat, you know, you call us up, let us know. You know, all expenses paid. We're gonna take care of you. You know, I, I have them come in town. I bring in, um, you know, between eight and nine guys uh, once a year, at least on this retreat. And, and we're tapped into all kinds of other retreats and medical care and, and physical therapy that we can get for the guys. But specifically this retreat that I'm talking about, you know, I bring in one of the top psychologists in the country. We do um, a walk, a traverse on the presidentials. You know, for about four and a half days, and um, they just decompress, man. And all it is is uh, the way I look at it is it's just maintenance. It's just maintenance for the men. We don't right. know when men are going to break. We don't know if they are going to break. But you know what? The Pararescue Rescue Foundation is there to to so those guys can feel reassured that they have some brothers that are out there at least trying to do the best that that they're we're, that we're looking out for them. And it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, we're struggling through this, too, you know, trying to get the foundation up and running. But it doesn't have to be perfect. The only thing they need to know, uh, at least I believe this, is that there's some brothers out there who are are looking out for them and are going to try to help them if they want to give us a call or they want to call on behalf of one of their buddies.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right uh, in terms of how important it is and, and the maintenance piece. I had a conversation about that and, um, with a, a spe- former special operations guy. And what he was saying is he kind of, uh, used a car as an example, right? You have like this high end car, you, you know, that the car has a super duper engine. And after, you know, 200,000 miles, that engine needs maintenance. And what we were talking about was, you know when you're in combat, when you're deployed, when you're doing all these things all all of these like different um chemicals in your body testosterone and and all these things that your body uh mechanisms that your body has to for survival for uh, defense and and whatnot all of that stuff is constantly going up and down right and then eventually at some point you need that uh, that maintenance you need to kind of take a break from everything. Uh, kind of tune yourself up uh, and and then you can go get after it or maybe that that's your your transition out you know uh it, it's just interesting to hear you talk about that so
2: if yeah so let me so can i john can i say one thing yeah, yeah so, so 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 that guy you were talking to is spot on and um so what he's talking about so you know i'm in the air force so i'll talk air force lingo so Air force is built around the aircraft. That's just how it is. You know, that's the air, you know, you got the army, but you know, the air Force, the, the Navy, they, they both. So the air force, it's built around the aircraft. Okay. PJs, combat controllers, Soutie, TACP. P. These are ground type of guys who do this heavy ground mission. That's more kin to like the army. So the air force is built around the aircraft. And so all these shops, they have all these shops on an Air Force base that their primary job, like like NDI and, and these maintenance shops. I mean, some of these shops, like NDI, it's like they test the oils in the aircraft and they'll put the oils and analyze them. And they, they can tell by analyzing the oil, just like, like your friend was saying about the car, they can tell what part of the engine is breaking down. On the aircraft before it ever breaks down by by testing the metals and and doing all this stuff. So they have all these different organizations and shops to keep that aircraft running and top performance and never breaking down until it does its whole 10 year of 30, 40, 50 years in the military. Okay, now what your buddy was saying is like, hey, look at. You have the warrior. Or you have the, the ground guy who, are we any less important? And and not to say that the Air Force isn't taking care of them because they absolutely are, but it's an evolutionary thing. You know, like, hey, look, at they realized problems and we need to get on that. And, you know, the aircraft one probably got realized a long time ago, just like the big boats, and it just made perfect sense. But now we're, we're at a, a, a wave. It's cresting now where now we're like, Potif, preservation of the force and family. That's called POTIF. And all that's geared around like, hey, how can we take better care of our war fighters? The airman, the soldier, the sailor who's on the ground. I mean, don't they break down? Do they need some sort of spiritual, some sort of spiritual tune up? Do they need some sort of physical therapist? Do they need some sort of strength and conditioning coach? Why? So they can do it better, stronger, faster, and and be and and transition and leave the Air Force not maybe all broken, but better attuned, and and we just didn't just kick them off to the curb. So that's what they're trying to put in place, and and uh, and that's what the Pararescue Foundation is doing. Like we're we're helping them, or getting out ahead of them, or filling in the gaps that they aren't caught up yet in, like. So if a guy needs, you know, something and the Air Force says, hey, look at right now, we're not going to, we don't want to, we have our own doctors, you know, but but we feel like a guy might need a little bit more specialized physical therapy or more hours. Hey, look at, we're going to help you out here, you know, or, hey, here's a more holistic approach. You want to go see a doctor over here? Hey, we're going to help you. Or you had a tragedy And right now, as the military works through some bureaucracy or whatever to get the funds, hey, look, we'll get you these funds right now. Where does it need to go? And uh, so it's our way of letting those guys know spiritually, you know, because I think it does help. It helps um, spiritually, it helps, uh, you know, mentally for them to feel secure that, hey, look, there's another avenue that's standing by to help you when things maybe are just going a little bit too slow for the bureaucracy of the big the big machine does that make sense
1: oh no it definitely does and and i understand it completely i know um recently there were two uh well there were a couple of combat deaths in the last couple of months um i forget i forget the exact names of the 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 gentlemen involved i believe there were um 82nd guys or or uh, yeah i think there were 82nd guys and uh, friends of mine were friends with them or, you know, they were kind of in, involved in the same small community and we were discussing in, in in a private conversation, you know, how these things work in terms of the, the speed that the families receive some of these funds and uh, you know, the spouses and, and whatnot. And one of the things that was said was, in 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 certain cases, you know, uh, the spouse may receive you know four hundred five hundred thousand dollars when they're um, you know, when their husband is killed in combat or or in a training accident or something like that. But one of the issues was is that it takes time for them to receive that money or to start receiving that money. So uh, and then on top of that, you know, the emotional stress and and um, and everything that's kind of piled on at the same time. And what we, what we was talking about was how important it would be if people can get at least a little bit of money before, uh, you know, that entire process happens where the money gets cleared through the, uh, DOD and everything like that. Yeah,
2: no. And, and yeah, and absolutely, man. And, uh, and the air force, I think does really, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I, I keep, first of all, I would never speak ill of the, of the air force and they, they always did right by me and absolutely 100%, man. And I think they're really good at, um, at least in our communities that I've noticed, they've been outstanding at supporting families of lost, uh, you know, lost airmen, lost warriors. And, uh, and, um, so they, so they do, they do really well at at stuff like that. And, uh, you know, like another, another tangible example might be, you know, we, we did, we, we lost a guy last year on a training accident and his team, his team, you know, wanted to do, we have, there's a, there's an old PJ who plays the bagpipes. He does uh, amazing grace. He's done them for many, many years. He goes and plays the bagpipes at Arlington, you know, amazing grace and his team wanted to fly that guy into the memorial service and have this guy play amazing grace now you know there's no compensation for that in the military. You know the air you know, and you, you can kind of see the dilemma the air force or even any of the services would have with that is you know they they can't be dishing out funds for all kinds of crazy you know what they might view as all kinds of different maybe not crazy but all kinds of different ideas that people might come up with. But you know his his team reached out to us and said, "Hey, look at we we would like to um We'd like to fly this guy in, and you know, and, and send our send our brother off in style. Um, you know, have this guy come out and play Amazing Grace on the bagpipes. And um, now, you know as well as I do, man, you never have a second chance. You know, to to redo a memorial. That's a big deal, man. And uh, and so we 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 offered to pay the bill for that. We're like, hey, we got it. We understand. We we've, we've talked about it. We'll flip the bill for, you know, for paying that guy to come out there if that's what you guys want to do. If you need some funds for that, then, you know, we that's we can do whatever we want. And that we felt that was within our purview of taking care of the team of guys who just lost somebody.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, you you can't quantify how valuable it is. And um, that's right. How long have you guys been been running the Power Rescue Foundation? uh, only
2: about two years, man. So we've been doing it for about two years solid. It's very new, but, um, it's gaining, you know, it's gaining a lot of traction and we've helped a lot of dudes in two years. You know, we've, I've hosted, we've hosted two retreats up here, you know, at, uh, seven to nine guys on both of those. And then throughout the year, we're sending guys over to, you know, like, exos and physical therapy and transition courses. And you were talking about transition courses. We flipped the bill for guys to go out to the seal transition courses and some of the other transition courses to help them out. Guys who come up to the retreat, they wanted secondary follow on medicine, you know, from the same doctor who I have come out who spends a week with them and then she brings them out to their institute. So, you know, we've had guys go to inpatient care. We flipped the bill for inpatient care. So for so in two years, you know, I we've helped a lot of guys. We've helped a lot of people, man, and I'm pretty stoked about it.
1: Yeah, I think it's incredible that you guys are doing that. Uh, if if anyone listening, any airman or, or anybody who would would qualify for some assistance from you guys, if, if they were interested in, in getting in contact with you or maybe uh, just just checking out what you guys are doing, where can they go to do that? Is there a website or? A, a yeah, there media? is.
2: Yeah, it's called the uh, pararescuefoundation.org.
1: Okay, and that's yeah. P-A-R-A, right?
2: Yeah, P-A-R-A rescue. So pararescuefoundation.org, and there's a nice website there. And you know, if people want to donate, it's a it's a it's a great cause. I mean, you're talking about warriors, really super elite warriors, who rescue our most elite people and all the humanitarian all the rescue SAR search and rescue efforts. I mean, they're on TV right now. I saw them on CNN today, helping out at, um, you know, plucking people off the roofs over at, uh, um, in Houston, you know, yeah. and then they're, they're spinning up right now to help out in uh, Irma, you know? So, um, that's pretty cool. I mean, guys who rest risk their life to save other lives, you know, these things we do that others may live. So,
1: Right, and, and that's the motto of the of the PJs, right?
2: Yeah, these things we do that others may live, and uh,
3: um, yeah, it's
2: yeah. So pararescuefoundation.org If anybody wants to, you know, help out, and uh, it's run by four PJs, you know. So there's no bureaucracy. That money, that money goes straight to as many guys as we can help. So the more money we get, you know, that, I mean, that's the difference between. Nine or ten guys, maybe it jumps to thirteen or fourteen, you know, and we'll just continue to triage and help as many guys as we can.
1: And if if anyone listening is interested in kind of keeping up with what you got going on, or maybe checking out your company, where can they do that? Website or social media?
2: Yeah, so it's uh Greenfeet. so www.greenfeet.org
1: okay greenfeet.org. so you know for the audience, um, obviously if you listen to this entire episode, um, the experiences behind this company is you know 21 years of service, special operations. these guys are doing incredible work. check them out uh, greenfeed.org um, and and also uh, I'm glad that you talked about that you guys were working with uh, SWAT teams and first responders, police officers, EMS. Because the um, you know the nature of what they're facing has changed drastically with the the spread of these you know kind of terrorism style uh, attacks and and things like that, just you know mass casualty events. That uh, you know who better to learn from than the guys who've been doing it for twenty years. You know.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, John. Appreciate it, man.
1: No problem, man. I just want to thank you for taking all the time to do this, and uh, thank you for your service.
2: All right. Take care, John, and uh, look forward to talking to you again, okay? Let me know if you need anything else.
1: Sure, bro. All right. Be sure to check out the podcast notes on the website at www.globalrecon.net slash podcast. Each episode is listed in chronological order. In the description for each episode, there will be links and, and fo- information to follow up with the guests who are on and will talk about maybe some of the the businesses that they own and how to access them and and reach out to them if you are interested in in what they offer. We took a small break, but now we're going to get back to the regular schedule of a weekly podcast. Uh, As always, we enjoy doing this. And, uh, you know, check out the website, globalrecon.net. On Instagram, it's igrecon. The second account where we're posting is Black Ops Matter. My co-host, Chantelle Taylor's military account is Mission underscore Critical. Check her out. Check out the book she wrote. Very good book. It's called Battle Worn. The Memoir of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. It's available. Easiest place to get it is Amazon, but it's available wherever books are sold. And be sure to subscribe and, and leave us a rating on iTunes. And that way we, you know, we know that through your feedback that you guys, you know, would like us to continue to make these podcasts and get these guests on and and kind of give you an insight to uh, some of these types of people. So we'll see you guys next week with another episode. Peace.